Hey people, it's Ashley and this is Let's Talk Recovery Houston. Doing something kind of different today, um, which is exciting. All this new stuff. Uh, so we are actually doing our first Skyping someone in, which I think is awesome. Uh, and this is Steve Ward, who is the Executive Director of Step Ministries in Alabama. And I'm super excited to hear his story and just how he got to where he is and all the things that he gets to do. And so with that, Steve, I'm just going to go ahead and let you take it away. Ashley, thank you so much. You are very uh, welcome. It's good to talk to all my friends in Houston. Um, I guess we all have a story, don't we? Um, I, mine probably has a, a, a few different aspects to it. Uh, I guess to start with, you know, I understand addiction and recovery from a lot of different angles. Um, I'm an alcoholic. My wife's an alcoholic. Both our dads were, and we had a son who got into drugs and alcohol pretty heavily as well. So kind of wear many hats in the addiction and recovery world. Um, my personal story wasn't the most dramatic early on, but I think that's a story in itself. And that, you know, when you talk to a lot of people in recovery, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a story with great drama. And those are, those are compelling. They pull you in and, and you really connect to people who have stories like that. But I think there's a lot of people who ease into addiction. And, uh, you know, and, and it, maybe early on it doesn't have the drama. And so they don't pay enough attention to it. And all of them, they look around and they're an alcoholic or they're a drug addict. And like for me, you know, I'm just a, a normal high school kid kind of doing my thing. And you know, I, I was comfortable in one or two of my roles, you know, like I, I did pretty good at school, so I was, I was cool there. I was okay athlete, but the role I wanted to play was I kind of wanted to be popular and I wanted to, to hang out with the cool kids, you know, and in, in my high school, they drank. And so I said, well, that, I'll give that a shot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as as many people find out, you know, you, you have your first drink or you use whatever your substance of choice is, and, and it's not a disastrous, tumultuous situation. It's actually a very pleasant situation. And so I drank alcohol starting, I guess, first as a sophomore in high school, and I got a lot better at it as a junior, and I thought, well, this stuff is pretty cool. You know, it, it, it made me feel kind of the way I wanted to feel. Um, it, it, it loosened me up. It's a great social lubricant, as you all know. Uh, it made me more comfortable in situations where I wanted to be more comfortable. It made me, uh, in my own mind, much cooler than I was before I started drinking. It's that liquid courage, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So I, so I said, well, this works pretty good. And, and, and during high school, most of my drinking was fun. It was me and my buddies going out and or going to parties and doing whatever we want. And there wasn't much downside to it. Yeah, we had to kind of hide things. Um, I was either blessed or cursed by having two incredible parents who probably thought I could do no wrong, so they didn't question me very much, um, which I'm aghast at in retrospect, um, because, you know, by the time I got to be a, a junior in high school and then a senior, you know, it, it had become the accepted norm that if I was going to do anything social, if there was any way we could possibly pull it off, it would involve alcohol. It wasn't even a decision. It was just more of a well, how are we going to pull this off? And uh, this was back in the day, you know, this was, even where I was, legal age was, was 18. But, you know, I, I was very proud at 16 to get my first fake ID. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, wasn't hard to do. Uh, you, you send a letter to Las Vegas and you put a, a picture on it and you get back with a laminated ID, you know, a Georgia identification card. Now, what in the world is a Georgia identification card? I don't know. <laughs> But, but back then, liquor stores were very glad to take it, and, and they didn't care very much. So those were kind of my high school years. You, you know, I, I didn't crash and burn. Nothing happened. Um, I, I went to college, and I'm not sure. Like I said, the changes for me were subtle, and over time, you know, I, I, I got into college. I went to Georgia Tech, so it's a pretty tough, rigorous college. But somewhere along the way, I found myself drinking probably at least six nights a week and during the day if I could get away with it. And, you know, the concept of being a highly functioning alcoholic is not something that I say to pretend that I wasn't a real alcoholic. 
or to say that I was less than. But I find sometimes when I talk about it that way, it seems to connect with people who don't connect with it otherwise, if that makes sense. No, that doesn't you know, make sense. I'm doing what I do now, I talk to lots of people. They're alcoholics. Or they're drug addicts. They don't know it. You know, because they're they, they still get up and they go to work or they go to school and they do their thing and they haven't crashed and burned and haven't got thrown in jail and so therefore they think that means they aren't one and it's a rude awakening to them when I, I say well that's that's not how they define it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it really kind of comes about you know who's in control? Are you in control of it or is it in control of you? And in in college, I drank as much as I could whenever I could and and like I said. By then, I was surely an alcoholic, but it, but it, I wasn't thinking about it that way. But it was part of who I was. Um, it, you know, I just there was no way I would go through any social or recreational activity that didn't involve alcohol. I just that's just was, and and not only was it just a foregone conclusion, but I depended on it. You know, I wasn't about to go to a party sober. That's crazy. You know, who does that? You know. Um, and how in the world am I going to go to, a, 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 you know, a mixer where there's a bunch of girls there unless I'm ready for that encounter? You know, I didn't, you, you need alcohol to be ready for that. But like I said, at the time, I wasn't sitting around worried about being an alcoholic. I just did what, what people did or did what I did. You know, I, I, I thought, well, well, yeah, I'm a partier, but guess what? See, I think that's part of, of what addiction does as well, right, is I became proud of that being part of my identity. Right. In other words, you know, it, you know, the people I hung around with it, you know, you had different groups, right? You had the, the, the nerds and the God squad and the partiers. And I was proud to be a party, you, you, you know, and I look back and it's crazy, you know, that I had that perception about myself. Um, so that was kind of the, the college years and they went fine. And then I went out into the professional world and I guess my alcoholism kind of, um, I don't want to say it, it, it went into the background for a while, but it, it went into another phase. You know, it didn't go away, you know, but I, you know, I, I had to kind of get up and go to work every day, you know, so I, I was with IBM for 38 years until oh, two wow. years when, when, when I retired to, to found Steps Ministries. So I was in the business world for a long time and actually did pretty good, but the whole, you know, for about 20 of those years, I was an alcoholic. And uh, I still got up and went to work and did my thing and did a good job. And, and like I said, I, I'm saying this. I, I'm, I'm, I know I'm repeating myself, but this is important, I guess, for, for me and hopefully for your audience. If, if I say that, you know, my story didn't, doesn't have as much personal drama or did I didn't crash and burn, or if I use words like highly functioning alcoholic, I am not saying that makes me less of one or a better alcoholic than another. life. That's the last thing I'm saying. I'm only saying that because I'm trying to help a greater group of people understand how alcoholism works. It's it's cunning and it's baffling and it will trap us in our own way sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so so I went through you know a good bit of my adult life depending on alcohol but in different ways. You know, it was the way that I would relax after work. It was the way that I would turn my brain off. Again, it was always the social lubricant. So if I went to a sports event or went to a party or hung out with people, of course it was involved. It was just a tool that was part of my existence. Um, you know, uh, in the later years, I, you know, something as innocent as coming home from work and, you know, having some wine, but wine's innocuous, right? You know, alcoholics don't drink wine, right? Of course not, well, no. <laughs> well, if, 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 if you don't buy it in the normal size bottles, if you buy it in the really big bottles and you have more than one of those really big bottles every single night and you get drunk every night, well, guess what? You're an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and if you depend on it to deal with life and you depend on it to, to turn work off and to deal with stress and to have fun, and you know, it, it's, it's, in other words, it was more in control of me than I was of it. So along the way, I, I got married and uh, loved my wife, still love her. We've been married wow, almost 33 years. Oh, wow. But for a while, uh, I found a very convenient drinking buddy. You know, her dad was an alcoholic, and her story is not totally dissimilar to mine. Um, so we just thought 
drinking was how you, you, you go, it's part of life, right? And it's nice when you have an in-house drinking buddy, you know, that, uh, that makes denial a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> it's, it's a lot easier to kind of keep things uh, at bay that way. Um, so we went through life that way, and I'm, I'm not sure it had occurred to me that I had a major problem. You know, I wasn't playing the tape forward. I wasn't counting the cost. Uh, I wasn't thinking, you know, is this really effect? Am I as good a husband as I should be? Then we had a son and then another son. You know, I, I just kind of wasn't paying that much attention. And I was doing my thing, and alcohol was a part of who I was. It was inextricably part of me and my DNA. Um, and that was all well and good. Um, then we did kind of go through a period of, of drama. Um, my wife had some incidents that in, in, involved the police and other occasions of drama. Um, we had, I had two sons. Uh, my older son got into drugs and alcohol pretty seriously in high school. Um, he was going to a religious school and doing all the right things, and he made similar decisions as me. You know, he, he decided he wanted to hang around with the party crowd, and that's what he wanted his identity to be. Um, and he went down that path. Um, you know, his path did have a bit more drama than, than mine did. Uh, you know, he, he wound up being in residential recovery twice, uh, once for a year. Um, by the way, I, I, another aspect of our story is, as far as I can tell, by God's grace, it, it's, it's all working out well. He's doing well. Uh, my wife and I are both in recovery and have been for a while. Um, you know, but during, there was that period there where I refer to it as the dark days. Um, I wrote a book, which I mentioned, I'll mention in a little bit, but in the, in the book, when I'm talking about that, there was that period where we were in recovery in just about every way that you can be in recovery. You know, for myself, um, I'm the spouse of an alcoholic. Uh, I'm the dad of someone who's dangerously on the edge of getting into deeper and deeper danger and, and trouble. So we're in uh, family recovery meetings and he's in residential recovery and we're seeing counselors and therapists and my wife's going to AAA and I'm going to celebrate recovery and we, you know, we're talking to psychiatrists and, you know, so in all of the ways that recovery and, and similar care can be delivered, we probably experienced them all. And most of them, I actually, I, I didn't think they were terrible. You know, recovery was even different. I actually, when I was exposed to recovery, I thought, well, this is pretty cool. <laughs> you know, um, because, so I, so I wound up, so I stopped drinking 16 years ago. Um, and, you know, I remember the first, for me, I remember going to my first AA meeting. Now, I had been engaged in recovery a little bit before that. I'd been kind of figuring out what it was. But I remember going to an AA meeting. I don't know how many people can identify with some of the emotions of your first AA meeting, right? But you go in there, and, and it's every combination of, well, I'm not supposed to be here, but I I'm, guess I ought to give it a try. And I know those other people are going to be different from me. I'm not like them. Mm -hmm. I drank a little too much. That's my problem, right? So I, I had all those manifestations that we tend to, um, to hide the truth with. But... I can remember this clear as day, and it actually have it a story in the book where I sat there in, in in that meeting. I just listened to people talk, and I heard more wisdom in about thirty minutes in that meeting coming out of more people's mouths than I'd heard in years. You know, um, I mean, you know, you have people who look like they're attorneys or soccer moms, and you got people who are carpenters and truck drivers and you got some people who look like they're homeless but I'll be darned they were all saying things that made a lot of sense you know they, they just they were they made they had common sense they seemed real it seemed relevant and I was just kind of stunned by the collective wisdom of that group you know and and not only was it a collective wisdom but it also Kind of fit together you know everybody's got their own story and everybody talks about things but you know recovery is knit together by things like the 12 steps and by the things that we learn in, in recovery meetings right there's a common kind of a culture in recovery 
and and to hear people talk about their different lives and all their circumstances are different, but how they used recovery to live life better was stunning to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I thought this was really cool because by then I had finally figured out that you know one of the world's worst problems is addiction, right? It is incredibly cunning and baffling and it destroys lives and families. It just it does. It it's does. a tornado which creates havoc wherever it goes. And it it's clever enough that you know uh, whether you believe in in Satan or you just believe in the evil power of addiction itself, it will find a way to get its way in there if you don't have your guard up. Um, you know, so but recovery um, works. You know, do a lot of people relapse? Yeah, a lot of people relapse. Do a lot of people go to recovery and it doesn't work for them because they don't accept it and they die from addiction? Yeah, it happens all the time. We, we all know that. That said, for people who are willing to surrender to the process and understand that there is a higher power and it's not them <laughs> and to be willing to, to let go and go through the steps and work them as wholeheartedly as they can. And by the way, including making all the mistakes that we all make, recovery actually works. And there are tens of millions of people who have successfully gone through it. Yeah. Um, you know, again, that doesn't minimize the danger, right? Because we all know people who die from it all the time. Mm-hmm. I've been to more funerals than I want to talk about. And I, I know too many people who've lost a son or a daughter or a wife or a husband or a brother or a sister. It, it, you know, but recovery does work when it when it's properly applied so i thought well that's pretty amazing you know um the second thing i saw in recovery which was also amazing was um recovery doesn't only help you deal with your substance of choice or your behavior of choice right you can be addicted to a behavior right you can be a uh you can be addicted to gambling or spending or work or control or adrenaline i've known people who are addicted to adrenaline. They just run around doing crazy stuff. <laughs> you know? So, but, so, but, but what I saw in recovery is not only does it help you deal with your substance of choice, it helps you live life better. It helps you be a better husband or a better wife or a better dad or a better mom and a better friend and a better worker and a better person, you know? And I thought, well, that's pretty cool too. You know, that you have all these principles that if we learn them, not only can we avoid going down a road that's going to be catastrophic in, in its consequences, but we can live life better. We can find more peace, joy, and purpose every day. And I thought, well, that's amazing. You know, and um, for me, part of my journey as well was the spiritual part. So, you know, I happened to see the, the 12 steps, and I, I saw those, and I thought, well, those things look like the Bible to me, which in effect they are. They're very biblically based, right? So I saw all these things. I saw recovery addresses addiction when it's properly applied. It's a better lifestyle, and it's spiritually sound. And I thought, this is fantastic. And the question that grabbed me that changed the course of my life, certainly getting sober changed the course of my life, right? But the one that after that that, that changed it was, was the question, which is, why do we wait until people crash and burn and then send them through two or three years of recovery? Why don't we teach this to everybody upstream? You know, why do we why do we only talk about this in the AA meeting down the hall of the church, you know, on the far end of the hall where nobody knows what's going on? Mm-hmm. That's you good. Know? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Why don't, why don't we have a school for junior high and high school kids about this? Why don't businesses include this in their professional development programs? Why aren't parents taught to raise their kids this way? Why why doesn't this just become real life 101? You know, because if you think about recovery, what what does it teach you? It teaches you to recognize that you're not in control and that someone else is, to understand that we all have problems, but that's okay. Uh, And it's it's better for us to be aware of what we're doing and to uh, notice the things we do wrong and to admit them to other people. You know, I'm not going to walk through the whole 12 steps for you, but if you think about them, it's just a way to live life well. You know, so I said, well, this is good. I said, so I'm going to go read some books about how do you apply 
you know, recovery in the 12 steps to real life. And I went out and I, I really didn't find very many. You know, I, I found a lot of books on recovery that speak kind of recovery speak. You know, if, you, if you're in one of the meetings, you, it's kind of talking to you. And I saw religious books that kind of have a lot of church speak. Then I saw medical books and I saw psychological books. But I didn't really see one that was just kind of a day-to-day doing the things that we do. How do you apply the principles of recovery to live life better? So I wrote one. <laughs> I love that. And I, I, didn't, I didn't really know that I was supposed to be a writer, per se. And I'm still not sure that I am. You know, I do. I write a lot now. But I, I just, uh, I, I had a friend who was an author, and I kept going to him. I was saying, Troy, I, I think I'm supposed to write a book. You know, because I've got all this stuff that people ought to know. And only, the only people who know during recovery, you know, the rest of the world doesn't know this stuff. And, you know, he, he, and he said, he, he, he said, he said, the only time you should ever write a book is when you have something you absolutely have to say. And I said, well, okay, well, I'm willing to go through the work to try to take what maybe most of the people listening to this understand, which is recovery, and try to help the rest of the world understand that. Um, so I wrote a book called Steps, A Daily Journey to a Better Life. Um, it tries to take it, it uses the 12 steps as a construct, but it, it simplifies the 12 into five steps. So steps is ac- actually an acronym. The S stands for surrender, which lines up with steps one, two, and three. In other words, if we will understand that if, if we surrender our life to a, a greater power and let him help us make our decisions, that's you know, so it's steps one, two, and three condensed, and also in kind of a more forward-looking and aspirational way. Uh, the T in steps is for transformation, is kind of steps four, five, six, and seven, right? To uh, to recognize that that we, if we will recognize our own our own issues and just try to take positive steps on them, that life can get better. The E in steps is I chose empathy, which is an interesting word, right? But if you think about forgiveness, or if you think about connecting with relationships, or if you think about other people, a lot of that starts with the concept of empathy, right? Which is putting yourself in their shoes really being able to meet them where they are. So that was steps eight and nine. Uh, steps 10 and 11 are, are the P called progress, which is how do you put habits in place day to day, right? To, to, whether it's be a daily inventory to have prayer and meditation. So what do you do on a day-to-day basis to kind of keep recovery alive in your life? And then the S is step 12, which I call the service, right? Which is, you know, how are you gonna take this message to others? Or based on what you have learned and your experience, how are you going to give back to the rest of the world? Um, so I, I wrote the book, but I'm still working full time. So I didn't have time to, to do much with it, to market it or anything. But I discovered that I, I like to write in the process. So I, I started a blog and just called so that I could keep writing. And at that point, I probably knew that I, I, I needed to go work on this in more of a full time way. And it took me a while to have the courage to go do that. Well, not even have courage, to, to, to finally give in and recognize that, that I was supposed to go do that. So I, I worked for two or three or four more years, and then finally I said, I've got, I've, got, I've got to leave the business world and go do this some fashion full-time. And so two years ago, I, I did. I left IBM and started Steps Ministries. Um, so I'm also a firm believer that all of our experiences generally have a purpose to them. You know, so part of my professional experience was that I was in, in marketing for a while. So now what we do in Steps Ministries is we do a lot of face-to-face stuff in non-COVID times, right? So I will speak to groups and I'll do seminars and I do some coaching, even though that's, that's not my primary bent. You know, but I'll, I'll do some of that. So cause I just love doing things face to face because it reminds you of what's at stake. And it reminds you that everybody that, you know, that, that lives are at stake on this. You know, so I, like I'm I'm coaching one guy now who's separated from his family. He's separated from his wife. His life blew up. It blew up because of alcohol, you know, and I'm talking to someone else who's you know, the mom and dad just last week, they had to tell their 20 year old son, 
you cannot live in our house anymore. They and miss I, set some you know, of those boundaries, right? <laughs> lay, yeah. lay the law down. You know, and uh, and so and I talk to parents all the time, and I talk to you know presidents of companies, and I talk to all kinds of people that drugs and alcohol are just wrecking their life. You know, so that keeps me grounded that life is dramatic, that life has drama in it. You know, it has both tremendous tragedy and it also has wonderful triumphs. And in the world of recovery, you kind of see that all the time, you know. Um, and, you know, I, my wife and I kid all the time that, you know, we'll tell our, our other friends, you know, that if you want to have real relationships and have real conversations, go to a recovery meeting, <laughs> you know. You can go to a recovery meeting and in five minutes, you can be talking at a deeper, more real, more transparent level with somebody that you just met than how people who've known each other for 20 years have conversations out in the regular world. Why know? do you think that is? Why do you think uh, we're so open and honest, right, in recovery, but maybe guarded with family yeah. or work or those kinds of relationships? That, that's a good question. And, and to me, it all falls back to what you learn in recovery is, I think, how life is supposed to be lived. Now, unfortunately, right, a lot of people in recovery only get there because their life blew up, yeah. right? But in recovery, what traits do people tend to move toward? They tend to move toward humility. They tend to move toward honesty. They tend to move toward compassion. They tend to move toward um, a desire to serve others. They turn, you know what I mean? People in recovery tend to let go of self a little bit and to be a little bit less selfish, a little bit self-absorbed. And, and by the way, we are all that for the rest of our lives, right? But, you know, but in recovery, people are not so much trying to impress you with who they are like they are in the real world. They just kind of want to know who you are and they'll connect with you wherever you are and care about where you are. You know, in a recovery meeting, when somebody says, how are you doing? Generally, they really want to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where in work or on the tennis court or in church, I hate to say it, but when someone says, how are you doing? Generally, they don't really want to know. Or they you would know? be shocked if you just unloaded on them, right? They would be very yeah. unprepared for the, well, this happened, this happened, this happened. I don't think people know would know how to accept that. Because I think we're so used to hearing, oh, I'm fine. Everything's yeah. good. Everything's yeah. great. You know, so I was, I was in a meeting the other day, and I just, something got me going. And this particular meeting happened to be a bunch of business people, right? So it wasn't a recovery meeting. Um, so I speak to lots of different groups, right? So this was a business group. And I and they, I don't know, so they got me going. And I was just saying, a lot of the people you know, they don't know what they don't know. In other words, their lives may look like they're going okay. They're working really hard. They have a family. But inside, they're living lives of quiet desperation, which is what Henry David Thoreau said, that most men live lives of quiet desperation. In other words, that there's a lot of people who keep their life so busy and so full with activity that they don't know how empty their life is. You know, they may be doing okay at work. And financially, they may be doing okay. But they're stressed all the time. They're doing something in secret to deal with it, whether it's a substance or pornography or something, and they hide that from everybody else. And they go to church and act like everything's okay. And that's what they think life is. It's it's they have shallow relationships. They're not going deep with anybody. They're hiding a lot of themselves from most of the people they know. They're stressed most of the time, and that's what they think life is, because. Their house is okay, and they drive an okay car. You know, I said, that's not what life is supposed to be. You know, life is supposed to be a lot more real than that. It's supposed to be a lot more deep than that. And if it takes going through drama to get there, then, you know, I, I tell you, I'm, I could not be more thankful for the fact that I was an alcoholic. <laughs> because that led me to enough consequences that I had to figure something out. If I hadn't been an alcoholic, I would have been addicted to something else. I would have been uh, probably a workaholic, control-free perfectionist. Hmm. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. But because those things are kind of more um, politically acceptable, 
I, I may have been able to do it that way. You know, and I would have been, you know, 85 years old dying before I would have figured out, holy cow, I just lived my life the wrong way. Whereas to me, alcohol did me a favor. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so two years ago, I left and started Steps Ministries. And, and I said that all of our experiences happen for a reason. So I was in marketing for a lot. So, And then I kind of stumbled into writing. And even though we do lots of things um, face-to-face, what we're really all about is creating content and make it available to people in lots of ways. A lot of what you're doing here, right? You're creating content and you're making it available, you know, as a podcast, as a video in multiple ways, right? So, you know, between the book and 300 blog articles and lots of things, we have lots of content. So we're creating short videos and longer videos and podcasts and online courses and online tools and presentations. And we're still young, right? We are a young nonprofit with relatively few resources, right? right. But <laughs> what we're trying to do are to capture uh, some of the, the, the best philosophies and techniques of recovery and related disciplines, right? So I'll, I'll research recovery and psychology and related disciplines. And then on a topic, I'll try to write something that's just kind of down to earth, you know, where it's very understandable, it's practical that people can see how do they put it, you know, in into daily use. And then we're going to try to get it to as many people as possible. And so the, the kind of tip of the sphere of steps ministries is we talk about the prevention of addiction a lot because that gets people's attention when you say you're going to try to prevent addiction, right? Um, what, it, what we're really trying to do is to get the philosophies of recovery to as many people as possible okay. earlier in the ballgame, you know, so I do a lot with parents and, and talk about how can you rate. Now, if their kids are teenagers, it's easy to, pretty easy to get them interested in protecting their kids against addiction, right? Because they know that it's real. Mm-hmm. Even if they have elementary kids, right? You can raise your kids using the principles of, of recovery so that they become more balanced and more self-aware uh, and they handle their relationships. And guess what? If they grow up that way, then when they become a teenager and they're subject to all the incredible stress and uh, temptations that teenagers are addressed to, they're better able to deal with them. That doesn't mean they won't make a mistake, but they're better able to deal with it. You know, and um, so that's what we, we try to do. We, we try to put content into a lot of different forms and get it to a lot of different audiences to teach them what people in recovery talk about. Is this something just locally you do in Alabama, or do you try to branch out in Um, other states and get this information to other states? We are on the edge of doing that. In other words, we're we're try we want to be very generous with everything we do. So any organization, like if it was helpful to you guys to to use any of our articles or videos or things like that. You know, I, we could certainly arrange that. Um, well, I'm curious because I'm in recovery, but I have yeah. I have a high schooler. He'll be a senior next yeah. year, and then yeah. I'm about to have a sixth grader. So, yeah. you know. Well, for, for, you know, so for parents, you, you can consume content in multiple ways. You know, so I probably have 50 articles for parents, um, you know, 30 or 35 short videos, a number of podcasts. I have things gathered in, in what I call life improvement toolkits. That's just kind of a, a nickname for them. But a, a life improvement toolkit is on, for example, how do you, um, how, how do you, when, when your kids are in the teenage and they're, how do you protect them against the early stage of addiction, right? So there, there might be six articles, um, a short video for each one of them, like a one minute introductory video, uh, a podcast version. So you can go through the material in that toolkit and, an hour or an hour and a half, you know, so it's not, you know, light, breezy, five minute read, but on the other hand, it's, it's very, it's consumable if you're interested in the topic. And, and so we have life improvement toolkits on a number of things. Um, we have an online course, um, you know, for, for that, uh, we have material for business people. We have material for, um, I, I talk to a lot of people who are want, they don't know what recovery is yet. They should be in it, but they don't know. So I talk to a lot of people who are kind of in early stage addiction, 
and either they're trying to figure it out, God bless them if they are, or else they've had enough consequences that our consequences are forcing them to. Um, and what we also have a lot of material for people who are around addicts, <laughs> Not, <laughs> right? But spouses or people at work, you know, because there's, you know, as, as much pain and drama is inflicted on those around the addict is, or the alcoholic as there is, right? I mean, it, it just wrecks people's lives. Um, so if, if people want to look at a lot of content, if, if they only remember one thing, they can go to lifeimprovementsteps.com. Again, that's lifeimprovementsteps.com. And that's not, that's actually what we call our content portal, right? So, you know, from there you can link to the website and find out all about us. But the content portal is meant to just make content available, right? The, the blogs, videos, podcasts, um, online courses, some of those toolkits I mentioned. So in one place on one page, you can, it's your portal to do a lot of the content. Um, while you're there, if you don't mind clicking on the blue button at the top and sign up for the blog, then once a week you'll get an article and it'll be, you know, a five or six minute read, but there'll also be a one minute video that comes along with it. If you'd rather just watch a one minute video and there'll be a podcast version. If you'd rather listen to it than read it. So, uh, for anybody who goes to lifeimprovementsteps.com, if you don't mind signing up for the blog, then you'll get that once a week. And I hope that you enjoy it. Yeah, that's awesome. And we'll put the links to all this stuff too in all of our different platforms. So it'll. Yeah. So uh, as far as I can tell, I just soon spend whatever years I have left trying to um, help people live life better. And, and, and it's not anything that I'm sitting around and making up or creating. You know, I'm, I'm trying to take principles that that people hear about in the world of recovery and, and make them consumable by lots of other people in, in a way that they can understand it. And What's the name of your book, too? Can we Where can we find your book at? Is that, like, Amazon or? It's on that. In other words, it's called Steps, A Daily Journey to a Better Life. Okay. Um, it is on Amazon. Uh, on our website, There's you can order it there um that is on amazon it ought to be on cardsandnoble.com um i'm gonna release it again toward the end of the year i'm gonna do an audio version of it that we're just starting to create and i'm gonna have a kind of a, a an improved study guide that goes along so we're gonna re-release it again toward the end of this year but again it's called steps a daily journey to a better life um if anybody has trouble finding it email me and <laughs> i'll find a way to get one to you so So, any any questions that occur to you, or, you know, like I guess the things that that, that are different are, are one is I'm a firm believer that everybody is addicted to something, whether they know it or not, and everybody can benefit from recovery. They just they just don't know it, and and, and so it's, it, if I hope this is encouraging to people who are in recovery to know that. What you're learning are life-changing principles that will help you find more peace, joy, and purpose, as well as deal with your substance of choice. I want it to be encouraging in that regard, but I also want to encourage you to say you will then be gifted with information that can help the people around you, even those who, who may not have a substance problem, right? Because they're either too tightly wired or they're a control freak or they're a perfectionist or they're anxious. You know, they've all got their stuff going on. And they don't have the tools to deal with, you know, so they don't, they just kind of live that way, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that sometimes we go through the trials that we do for a reason, right? That sometimes they're to prepare us to hopefully help other people, you know, and, and people who've been through recovery are uniquely positioned to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So where did you guys get the name? So it's Steps ministries is this are you guys affiliated with a church or anything like that is that where the ministries part came from or no no i i wanted to have kind of a, an umbrella like for example there's a part i have called steps proactive parenting which is a, actually have a you know, a website for steps proactive parenting so if i'm doing parenting thing it's in that regard i have steps business wellness if i'm talking to companies i have steps life improvement if it's recovery um i do have a my spirituality is very important to me. I, I do do a lot of work with churches. Um, we're not directly affiliated with the church, um, but churches are a great vehicle 
for me to to do things with. So my faith is very important to me. I'm willing to talk to anybody about it, but I'll I'll let that be what it is. <laughs> okay, so what um, are some of the things you feel that benefited you during your recovery process? Was it just your your standard meetings, sponsor, steps? What, what really um, do you think benefited you? I, I, the thing that grabbed me the most, I think, was just the integrated wisdom of what you learn in recovery. In, in other words, I'm kind of a very pragmatic person. You know, in school, I was trained as an engineer, so I'm, I was pragmatic, you know. And, but I, when, when I saw what they teach in recovery, it just made sense to me. You know, so I, this is kind of a, a more general answer. I think it was the, um, just the, the, the proven collective practical value of what you learn in recovery is what grabbed me. So I've, I've gone through stages where, you know, I went to lots of meetings and I've gone through stages where I didn't go to lots of meetings. I, I don't want to encourage anyone to say that's the right way to do it, but I, I you know, everybody has their own journey and, and uh, recovery does need to, it needs to be, uh, you can think of it as a program, but I more think of it as a lifestyle. In, in other words, I'm, I'm really blessed right now that I kind of do this for my full-time vocation and ministry, right? That I get to think about recovery stuff all the time. Right. And all the time, I'm, I'm trying to think about, wow, how can I talk to this person who doesn't know what I'm talking about, right? They're struggling with life, or this person has a son who's on meth, or this person has a husband who's an alcoholic, or this person is just kind of a, a workaholic control freak. Uh, you know, I, I'm always trying to think, how do you articulate these principles in a way that people can understand it so that they'll do something about it? You know, and one of the biggest tragedies, this is the biggest tragedy in recovery is the biggest tragedy outside of recovery is Sometimes it takes a tremendous amount of pain for people to change. And, and we all know that, mm -hmm. right? And, and sometimes people die before they get to that pain level. You know, so that's always a struggle. You know, so I, um, yeah, I did one short video one time. Uh, it was called Why Starfish Matter. And there's a, a little story. This only takes about one minute to tell, but you, you've probably heard the story. There's a little girl walking along the beach. And it's just after a storm, so there's thousands and thousands of starfish on the beach. And she's walking along, throwing them back in the ocean, kind of one at a time. And this grumpy old man kind of yells at her and says, little girl, little girl, what are you doing? You can't save all those starfish. You know, and she throws one more back in the ocean. She says, I can save that one. <laughs> yeah. so, and, you know, I, I, I know if I'm talking to any group of people, some of them aren't going to pay attention. They're, they're, they're so mired in their own addiction or way of thinking that they'll blow it off. And maybe they'll figure it out. Maybe God will help them figure it out. Or maybe they're going to crash and burn. Or maybe they're going to die. I, I, I don't know. Um, and some people figure it out on their own. But there's a whole, there's millions and millions of people in the middle who, you know, if they see you know, something that y'all do, right? If they see one of your podcasts or if they see one of your videos, it might just be the trigger that gets them to start thinking. And, you know, uh, you know, we're all on a trajectory in life, right? And generally, you know, our trajectory has lots of ups and downs, but it's a general statement. We're either going, heading downward or we're heading upward. And sometimes it, only, it can take a relatively small thing to change somebody's trajectory. You know, and then after that, it just becomes a series of small steps to get better and better and better, one step at a time, one day at a time. You know, um, so you never know. You you never know which of you know the videos of the podcast that y'all do might make a difference in somebody's life. It might be just what they need to hear at just that point in time. You know, so that's that's kind of cool. That is cool. <laughs> what we're, what we're so, what has been uh, your favorite or most liked thing about recovery, and what has been your least favorite? about recovery if you had a least favorite most people were like making amends or step four <laughs> um step four wasn't it wasn't pleasant 
But when I, when I went through it the first time, I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. You know, so I, I, I tried to do it as exhaustively as I could do it, which did kind of make it painful. You know, I, I kind of thought, well, this no big deal. I'll, I'll sit here for a couple hours and, you know, think of all the things I've done wrong. Well, shoot, no. Once you open up Pandora's box, it's amazing what we've done. <laughs> we've kind of hidden down. So, you know, step four for me was exhausting. The, uh, there were a lot of things. But it was cleansing. You know, so it wasn't tortuous. It wasn't pleasant. But it was um, catalytic. You, you know, it, it was, it helped make a change. Um, what's unpleasant about recovery? Um, there's not much. You know, because like I said, there's not there's not too many people in recovery who are fake. Um, there's some people who like to hear themselves talk a lot, but that's okay. There's worse problems to have. <laughs> there's, um, you know, I, I think I hate the, the tragedy of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't like, I know somebody who's lost both of his sons to drugs. I know someone who's lost both of her parents to drugs. I know lots of people who've lost a husband or a son or a daughter, you know, and when you, I, I think when you lose somebody to drugs or alcohol, you have all the pain of death and all the pain of losing a loved one, but somehow it's worse because it seems like it should have been preventable, you know? Yeah. And people around them seem to hurt in a special way. You know, yeah. they just, it's, you know, uh, I don't know. We, we do something here called the End Heroin Birmingham Walk once a year. And so, you know, three or 4,000 people will come out for a walk once a year. And it's, and there'll be some speakers. And most of the people there, they're either in recovery or they're there to remember someone who's in recovery that they've lost. You know, so people wear badges with, you know, it'll break your heart. You know, to see. Yeah, we kind of yeah. have a similar thing here. It's not a walk, but they, yeah. it's a candlelight visual that they do at the town hall every year. And it's, it's pretty sad just how yeah. many people still just can't get it or won't get it or don't know that they can get this thing. You know what I mean? I think that's what's so frustrating. How many, how many people have you lost? Right. Like, so. Yeah, and when and when you talk to, you know, like I talked to a twenty-year-old week before last, right? He is so desperately sad, but he doesn't know how to get out of it, right? He's he's ashamed of what he does, but he only knows one way to feel better, mm -hmm. which is to keep using. It. That's all he knows, you know. And it's either going to kill him, or something, or he needs to be saved or resurrected or something. And I, I don't know which it's going to be right now, you know? And, and so you can watch drama play out right in front of you, you know, or, or if you see someone who embraces recovery, you know, over a few months, you can watch not just their circumstances change, because sometimes the circumstances take a while to change. You can watch them change as a person, you know, you can watch them let go of all the stuff that used to drive them crazy and, stop being so angry at, all the time where they're just carrying resentments and throwing them around at people, you know, it's, it's amazing to watch someone's entire life. No, it really is. I think that's one of the coolest things about working with yeah. addicts is where I can see over like some months and it's like, Oh, look at you. You're growing. Like you're changing. <laughs> so where do you think you'd be now? Had you not started your journey? Like if you had not gotten sober and you hadn't left IBM, yeah, what do you think if, that would look like? Yeah, if I hadn't gotten sober, I, I could have died in a car accident because I was an absolute fool to drive intoxicated. I, I am ashamed and embarrassed on how many times I did that over the years. And I think that I was, I don't protect it. By it. So I, I, I could have died in a car accident or died of eventually cirrhosis of the liver. It could have been something like that. 
or else I, I, it would have gotten to the point where I became a spectacle. It could have been that. But like I said, I, it could have also been that my other addictions would have just, you know, like I said, that I would have been a, uh, a an uptight, control freak, perfectionist, workaholic. You know, Which there's I, I, there I, are a lot of those. I know some people like that. Yeah. <laughs> there are people. There's yeah. There's a lot. And that they don't even think they have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't know. Yeah. So um, we had talked about your wife a little bit earlier. Does she help you with uh, Steps Ministries? Is that something you guys do together, or is it just kind of your project? Uh, to some degree, uh, she helps in a hands-on way because she's our accountant. <laughs> so she, you know, she she does the accounting. Um, she is my muse, right? So she's the one that I will practice concepts. So I'll say, you know, she's been the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of recovery meetings, right? So she's able to one up say, is this concept, you know, she'll do that. She's not on the delivery end yet. I, I think she probably will be. In, in other words, um, I, for example, don't try to write content specifically for women, right? I do specifically for, most of the stuff I write is for men and women. I do write some stuff that's specific to men because I understand how screwed up men are, right? I know how they think. Uh, I think I feel like it's in our future that she and I will work together on kind of a women's ministry thing, you know, but that will happen when it's supposed to happen. Um, you know, so she works for another nonprofit now as well. Oh, okay. Full nonprofit. Okay. Um, let's see. Some of these you've actually already. Um, here's a good one. Do you think, uh, Others' opinions of you have changed since you've been in recovery. So maybe like your families or your friends, do they maybe, do you still know people from when you were in your addiction and now, or did you start completely like from scratch with new friends? That's a pretty good question. Um, my circumstances get in the way of that, that I've, I've moved around a lot, you know? So for example... When I got sober, I was living in Atlanta, and now I live in Birmingham, okay. right? So um, that said, you know, there are people who knew me when I was an alcoholic, and there are people who still know me, right? Um, so I do have some kind of before and after things. And I, I've, I've asked a couple of them, I said, well, did you ever think I had an alcohol problem? They said, everybody got alcohol problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, why don't y'all say something to me about it? <laughs> You're like, thanks a lot. <laughs> you know, that's why I talk to a lot of people who are around alcoholics and drug addicts. Because most people don't know what to do. And they're fearful of what to do. And they're embarrassed. And they don't want to say the wrong thing. Right? Well, that's that's wrong. No, say something. You know, you can, in love and kindness and compassion, you can say something. And you don't have to be an addiction expert. You can just say, you know, John or Susan, what's going on? And and when they say, well, nothing, they'll say, well, no, what's really going on? And when they say, well, nothing's going on, they'll say, no, what's really, really going on with you? And just kind of be where they are and try to get them to share where their life is at. You know, you can help people, you, you know, because most people who are in addiction are practicing some form of isolation. Right. They they're either literally isolating when it's extreme, but a lot of people, you know, may may still hang around other people. They may still go to work, but they're isolating a part of themselves from the world. You know, there's a part of themselves that they keep secret and that they don't talk to anybody about. So they superficially say hello and chat with other people at church and work, but they don't they aren't sharing their real core existence with, with other people. And if you're the first person that is um, a safe enough person that someone will kind of admit something like that, that could that could be the key that, that unlocks the door for them to, to start moving in a positive direction. And you don't have to fix them. You don't have to tell them any clever ideas. You know, all you have to do is kind of listen and empathize and, and be there with them and, and not be judgmental, but yet on the other hand say, well, maybe there's some things you ought to do about it. And just by being that gentle, 
you can be a catalyst for maybe somebody to, to start taking positive steps. You know. So you mentioned isolation, right? And so a lot of us in our addiction did isolate. I did. I was not social with my using whatsoever. How do you think COVID has affected people getting help, right? Because treatment centers are kind of being ran a little bit different. You don't have access to face-to-face -face meetings. So do you think it's been yeah. bad for people in recovery, the, the whole COVID yeah. thing, or? Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's multiplied all of those problems. Yeah. And I think statistically, um, not substance abuse, depression, anxiety, family abuse, suicide, all of those, I think, statistically have gone up during COVID. And, and it does make sense, right? Because, um, A, if you're in recovery, it means you are probably either cut off from your support structure or else it's a lot harder to use, you know? And so, you know, for someone who's depending on that to, to cut off their lifeline, that, that can be tough in itself. But also just in general, I mean, when we have less connection with people um, and we're more isolated and it's easier to drink or use because we're not around other people. In fact, I was around a, another guy, right? He's, you know, again, this is a guy who's separated from his wife. When you're by yourself, it's just easier to say, well, nobody knows what I'm doing. Why not are you? So I, I think COVID has exacerbated all of those mental health and addiction issues. You know, we're, we're not connected. We're under more stress. Um, some of us have more free time than we should have. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors which all tend to work in a negative direction. You know. So if you could tell your older or younger self anything, what would it be? If you could have gone back in time and told your younger self something, what do you think it would be? Or nothing. Um, Some people are like, no, nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, I, I, one of the things I feel very, very, very blessed about is that I don't, um, I don't carry a lot of shame and guilt. You know, there's a lot of things I I can be ashamed about. But I also think that sometimes our journey is the way it's supposed to be. You, you know, that said, if I was going to talk to my early self, I'd just say, wake up, man. <laughs> you know, like, why when I was 18 or 28 or even 35, I wish I knew all this. You know, because I look back on all those years and... Oh, it's not like they were all terrible. There were a lot of good things, but I look back on all those years and I just, I wasn't living life the way it's meant to be lived. You know, yeah. it was more superficial and more anxious and more controlling and more addictive was just, that was a way of life. You know, um, you know, life's better <laughs> when you don't, you know, and, and by the way, for anybody who's in the early stages of recovery, it, it may not seem better at first, right? <laughs> when you when you give up whatever your substance or behavior you're used to, it's kind of hard, mm -hmm. you know, because you have to kind of figure out a new way to live, you know? But I want you to know that it does get better, and it keeps getting better and better and better and better and better. Yeah, you know, so, so hang in there. Because it does get better. That's why I tell a lot of the girls I work with. I'm like, I swear it's going to get so much better. Like, yeah. And at some point when you're like doing the work and you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do, you just, you don't even think about it anymore. Yeah. And I don't even know where it happens, but it's just, you just will be like, oh, wow, I haven't even, I just haven't even thought about using or going to drink. Like it just, it happens and it's awesome. Yeah. And it, it is pretty, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So this was, um, man, this was awesome. Uh, do you want to give any shout outs to anybody or? Um, to my two sons and my wife, I love you very much. And thank you for traveling with me through this journey <laughs> <laughs> and putting up with me. And, uh, and I love you, uh, to my mom, who's 90 years old. Mom, it's all good. Hang in there. Um, it's all good. And I love you. And to all of y'all that are out there, whether you're, uh, struggling and you think that life is hopeless or on the other end of the spectrum, you think you have life knocked and 
you you know you think you got it all figured out. Um, I, I I I hope that both of y'all you know will 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 find an answer. You know if if you're struggling, I, I hope that you find a lifeline and and will start to take positive steps because as as Ashley said, it will get better. So hang in there and keep doing it. It will get better, and once it starts getting better, it will get better and better. So hang in there. And for all you people out there who think you have life figured out and you don't need any of this stuff, good luck. Yeah, everyone should work a 12-step program. (laughs) Everyone should work a 12-step program. Um, So this was great. So I'm definitely going to stay in touch with you and exchange some emails with you because I would like for personal to get some more information about your stuff and all of your links and everything are going to be listed on all of my platforms which we can find on Facebook, YouTube, um, Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. So much. Yeah. Oh. Yay, it's awesome. So like, share, if you know anyone that's struggling, reach out. Um, and yeah, that's it for today, people. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a good night. <laughs>